0: Amen. So this morning we are going to see three things in this section. We are going to see opposition, we're going to see offenses, and we're going to see obedience. And so we're going to begin with the section of opposition. Look at 20 and 21 in Mark chapter 3. It says, Then the multitude came together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. <laughs> You're like, wait, we're talking about Jesus, right? <laughs> his own people. This is a wild section. Because remember last week, we talked about the, the Pharisees getting together with the Herodians that wanted to find a way to destroy Jesus. And there's a part of that where we go, okay, sure. The religious establishment was upset by Jesus. They were bothered that Jesus came and they wanted a Messiah, but they didn't want that Messiah. They wanted a Messiah that would exalt them, that would say, I'm here to overthrow Rome and make you guys the true leaders and really establish you. Instead, he came and what did he say? He said, repent and believe in the gospel. His forerunner, John the Baptist, came and called them brood of vipers. He said, you guys need to repent. Who warns you to come out here and hear this message, John the Baptist said. These guys are thinking, this is not the kind of message that we expected from the Messiah. And so we understand when the religious leaders had brought controversy to Jesus, right? They said, man, we're going to try to destroy him and whatnot. But remember, see, you have an element of religious leaders trying to take out Jesus. Remember, we also studied in Mark 3 that, man, Jesus was constantly busy serving the Father's will. (laughs) So not only do you have controversy, you kind of have, like, I don't know, busyness and, I won't call it chaos, because Jesus is in control, amen? But there is a part of ministry sometimes where it gets moving and it's constant, right? And so he's trying to stay away from the controversies. It's constantly moving. We're told in Mark 3.19 that they had come into the house, him and his 12. And we said, well, why would you go into a house? What does this mean? I'm imagining that after the constant attacks, the constant busyness, it's, man, I'm going to get away with my disciples. We're going to be refreshed. We're going to be revived. We're going to go, we're going to have a meal together. But we see in verse 20, it says, The multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. That statement makes me like almost stressed for Jesus and a little claustrophobic, right? That he's in the house and it's so crowded, so busy that he can't find a way to have a meal with his disciples. And we think about that and we're like, man, that sounds like really, wouldn't that wear on you? Wouldn't you just be like, man, I need to check out for a little bit. I need to take a break, right? Self-care. I need to get away from all this action, right? I love what Jesus did here. (laughs) We're told that Jesus actually was was always desiring to put everyone's needs before his own. You see, not only do we, we don't get it in this section, but Jesus is going to do some healing in this scene. He's going to do some things in this section that shows that he wasn't just concerned about, man, I'm so hungry, I haven't eaten yet, and I want to eat. And see, this happened in Mark 3 as well. If you remember, the people were pressing against him so hard in Mark 3, 9 that he told the disciples, get a boat ready, because they might crush me. (laughs) Remember, Jesus added humanity to his deity. That means he now felt tired when he got tired. He now felt hungry when he was hungry. He had the potential, as the Greek says, to be crushed like a grape. But you know what he did? In Verse 10 of chapter 3, he healed many. And all those that wanted to press against him, he allowed to come to him. And he continually allowed them to seek him. I'm so glad that we have a Savior. He says, I am here and I'm available. And I'm ready to save. I have put everyone above myself. <laughs> and see, again, Jesus never asks us to do anything he hasn't first done himself. And he says, I believe it's Mark uh, 6.31. It shows us that this whole thing with not having even the ability to eat, they couldn't even eat amongst themselves. In Mark 6.31 it says, Jesus told his disciples, come aside by yourself to a deserted place and rest." while and then Mark adds commentary on it he says for there were many coming and going and they did not even have time to eat <laughs> and see Mark ten forty five is the theme verse of the book of Mark it says for even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many see what I'm getting at here is that Jesus constantly had people chasing after him to attack him <laughs> he constantly had people coming to him with needs And he never put his own need above those things. He submitted to the Father's will. And he said, man, I'm going to look for ways to serve others. (laughs) And with that in mind, we go, well, okay, that sounds kind of crazy, especially in today's culture. Can I just tell you, today's culture is like you first, amen? you got to worry about you before you can love anyone else, right? Can I tell you, you love yourself plenty, by the way. <laughs> we all love ourselves plenty. Can I tell you, it's like, you got to take care of you before you take care of anyone else. And look, there's an element. Yes, sit at Jesus' feet and get the word before you go telling everyone else what to do. Amen? But can I tell you, if we start to go, man, I can't go serve others till I'm completely good and taken care of. You're never going to serve anyone else. <laughs> You're always going to be thinking, next year I'll have that right position, next year I'll have the time, next week I'll have the ability, next week I'll have all... Can I just tell you, trust in the Lord, and through the power of His Spirit, He'll use you for awesome things if you're willing. And we know this because, first of all, (laughs) Jesus already did it. (laughs) Completely man, right? We understand, again, added humanity to His deity. Totally God, also totally man. He didn't do it as God, He did it as man. (laughs) This is important for us because we now have a high priest who can sympathize with all of our weaknesses, as Hebrews 4.15 says. And see, as we understand that, we also know that as we do these things, sometimes people think we're kind of crazy for it, right? How many people in your life go, wait a minute, you got up on spring forward day and got to church? Right? That's crazy enough in itself. Wait a minute, you guys go to church sometimes on like Wednesday nights? You go to a men's study on Thursday? What are you, a fanatic? Right? They think you're crazy. It's funny because we get fanatical about a lot of weird things. But when we get fanatical about Jesus, all of a sudden it's a really bizarre thing to people. We understand this, but Corinthians tells us, right? uh, To the one, we are the aroma of death. To the other, the aroma of life. And the things of God are foolishness to those who have not understood them, that are spiritually blinded. And see, in this case, it's kind of wild, because in verse 21, it says that his own people, his own people heard about all of this, and they went to lay hold of him. And see, when it says lay hold of him, the word in the Greek is kreteo. That means to seize, to arrest, to take by force. They were coming to grab him, because they said he's out of his mind. (laughs) Have you ever been called crazy for being faithful to the Lord? (laughs) Can I tell you, the Lord Jesus has experienced this. (laughs) His own, it says here, His own people. This is what we believe is a Greek Greek idiom that actually means kinsmen. We believe this means literally His brothers, potentially His sisters. Remember, Jesus had brothers and sisters, half-brothers and sisters. And and His mother. This is a bizarre statement when we read this, because we're like, Mary... (laughs) I thought Mary was the one she received. She knew, I mean, the miraculous conception, right? Can I tell you what Mary knew about Jesus? That he was going to be the Messiah. Did Jesus start calling himself the Lord of Sabbath just recently? (laughs) And people were thinking, wait a minute, it's one thing to be the Messiah. But listen, you can imagine his brothers going to Mary and saying, Mom, we know he might think he's the Messiah. But now he's saying he created the Sabbath, like he's in charge of it. I think this Messiah thing has gone to his head, right? He's out of his mind. That would make sense of what's happening here. (laughs) And then as as they're saying, we have to go take him. Why? He doesn't seem to be fazed by the fact that people are trying to kill him. He keeps going out and doing the same things that people are hating him for. And then if he's the Messiah, why isn't he busy overthrowing Rome? Why is he here like hanging out with tax collectors and stuff? Tax collectors that work for Rome and he's calling them to be his disciples? This makes no sense. He's not taking care of himself. He's so busy serving everyone else. He doesn't handle his own stuff. We got to go get him. We know what's best for him, they would say. (laughs) And see, I think this is funny because... John 7, 5 tells us his brothers didn't believe upon him, upon his testimony of who he was, until after his resurrection. And see, this is so cool because you may have, like I do, I have family members that think I'm crazy for my commitment to Jesus Christ. And can I tell you what sometimes I do? I kind of get worried that, man, they're just never going to come around, I think. Lord, why am I, I know I should pray for them. I'm having trouble. They just, they, they hate on everything we're doing. Lord, give me a heart for them. Can I tell you, Jesus' brothers came to faith? <laughs> at one time they didn't believe, and eventually they did. And that should be an encouragement to every one of us in the room that's praying for family members that don't believe on Jesus Christ. Amen? Jesus himself, let's be clear too. They might be looking at you and be like, okay, here's this flawed person that came to Christ. Jesus was perfect, and they still didn't believe until after the resurrection. <laughs> Okay, I tell you, there's hope still. There is hope as you continue to pray for those family members that don't know Jesus and understand that as they think you're crazy for it, Jesus has experienced that too. (laughs) So many times we want to say, Lord, you know, I don't know, in my flesh I do this sometimes. You don't know how hard this is. Or, you know, I may not say that, but that's kind of my heart center. The Lord Jesus was tempted in all things, but still without sin. We always think of just like a lust and those kinds of temptations, right? We're talking about the temptations of being a human. And he never responded in a sinful way. He didn't let people's accusations of him being crazy make him go, you know what, I'm done with you guys forever. (laughs) He continued to testify. He continued to minister. He continued to represent and serve the Father's will. And eventually, I'm so blessed to see that they came to know him. They came to believe upon him. I'll tell you, I've seen some miracles. I believe, first of all, I am a miracle in the fact that I've come to the Lord. And I think all of us who have come to Jesus would agree that our salvation is a miracle. Amen? But then I think about the people I've prayed for over the years. Friends that were as, as I don't know, as messed up as me. And they, they came to the Lord too. And you see it replicate. though so It's a different experience in the sense that it's very personal. It still comes by faith in the Word of God, as Romans 10, 17 says. At some point, the gospel came to them, and they received it. They repented. They turned from their sin. They turned from trusting in other things. And they began to walk in faith of Jesus Christ. And I just say that this morning to encourage you to say, man, whoever you're praying for in your family, (laughs) keep praying. (laughs) Your coworkers that you're praying for, keep praying. And whoever it may be that the Lord has put in your heart, keep praying that they would come. We, we were told in 1 Timothy 2 that it is a good and acceptable thing to pray for all men because God desires that all men be saved. Sometimes we want to throw in the towel and go, man, there's just no hope for this situation. Can I tell you that there's breath in the lungs. There's still hope the Lord can work. Amen? Love hopes all things were told in Corinthians. Man, let's continue to pray, but let's live that example out. Look at 22. We have a different kind of opposition here. This is something different than the family. This goes back to the religious leaders. Look what it says. It says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub. And by the ruler of demons, he cast out demons. So this is a huge accusation. Here are the scribes who say, what are scribes? Scribes were guys that literally, they were like the lawyers of the Bible. They would commit their lives to studying the Word of God and trying to figure out all the things in it that they could help support the beliefs of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They would give them the counsel. And what does the Word of God say? What are we all supposed to do with this? Can we confirm what is true and what is not true? They were supposed to be the ones that had everything figured out about the Word of God. But note that these scribes, they came down from Jerusalem, Which, if you're a geography person, that sounds kind of weird, right? Because Capernaum is actually above Jerusalem. But remember, Jerusalem is in elevation. It's always coming down from Jerusalem. You're going to be coming down wherever you go, no matter what direction, because it's lofted, right? It says they came down from Jerusalem. It's important because Jerusalem was the apex. It was the center of where all the religious leaders were. And I believe in this case, what they're doing is they say, we have to send some scribes to go see if they can investigate these rumors of Jesus' ministry. And I believe it wasn't with a sincere heart. It was, I want you to go there so that you can discredit his ministry. Because remember, Jesus has already cleansed the temple the first time in John's account. In John 2, 13-17, Jesus showed up and insulted everyone at the temple. In the sense that he said, what you're doing, this is making this place like like a den of thieves, right? He says, what you're doing, this is not what's supposed to be happening. He essentially gave them a warning to fix the temple and say, you don't do this here. They took the court of the Gentiles and they turned it into a marketplace and they were doing money changing and stuff. So if you were a Gentile walking up, the first thing you experienced in the Lord was like commerce. And it was all about making money. It was about profiting. It was ripping people off. And Jesus came and said, this is not what it's supposed to be. Remember, he made the whip, right? (laughs) Remember, Jesus makes whips sometimes, right? I always think that's interesting. The disciples are like, what's Jesus doing over there? He's just making a nice, cute little whip, huh? And he's like, oh, you just wait, right? And (laughs) they don't know that this is what Jesus came for. And remember, the prophecies of the Messiah was that he he would come like a refiner. He came to cleanse these things. And so these guys in Jerusalem, they're not a fan of Jesus to say the least. <laughs> and see in Matthew's parallel account, in Matthew 12, 22, it says one was brought to Jesus who was demon possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And then Luke's account in Luke 11:14 says when the demon had gone out, the, the mute spoke, and the multitudes marvelled. That's this section. Now it's interesting. Again, Mark doesn't include the actual miracle; he includes the details about all these guys arguing with him about how he casts out demons. So does that make sense? He's casting out a demon, and these. guys are like, oh, no way. We have to find a way to disprove this, discredit this, and see the stubborn spiritual blindness of the scribes. These are guys that studied the Word of God, like, all day long. (laughs) That should startle every one of us in the room. Guess what we do every time we get together as a a church? We crack open the Word of God. What sometimes that can do is create a self-righteousness, and don't get me wrong, we want to preach the Word, amen? We always want to be in it. But if we're getting it for the sake of puffing ourselves up, as 1 Corinthians 8.1 says, it says, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. We can do this sometimes, where we leave our first love. Where we get into the Word, and it's just about me exalting me. And it's not about learning how I can further submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And see in this case, these guys are here, and despite the fact that they've witnessed this miraculous healing, they try to discredit Jesus' ministry, and the multitudes, I believe it's in Luke's account, they say, surely this is the son of David. They're proclaiming Him to be the Messiah. And these guys are like, no, we came here to do the opposite, we can't have that be said. So what do they say? They said, he has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons, he cast out demons. <laughs> We're going to see how Jesus exposes this as terrible logic, right? But think about what they're saying here. <laughs> you see, we say Beelzebub, what is that? You've heard that in like Bohemian City before. Maybe you don't know what that word means. What it is, it's an interchangeable term for the name Satan. We see that Jesus uses the name Satan in place of Beelzebub. We see that gets used in a couple different Gospels. And the reality is, is the Lord of the demons is in Jesus casting out demons. That's what these guys were saying. <laughs> we're going to touch on it a little bit, but can I tell you how blasphemous a statement <laughs> that Jesus is actually an agent of Satan, not the perfect servant of God. And these guys are saying this, again, in spite of the fact that they've seen that Jesus is working, that He's doing these things. He's able to cast out a mute demon Can I tell you how crucial this is? In Jewish tradition, they believed you could not cast out a demon unless you knew the name of the spirit of the the demon. (laughs) So in other words, how do you get control over the demon? You have to find out its name. Oh, your name's Legion? Okay, now I can maybe cast you out if that's even really your name. But we believe that demon that said his name was Legion was just trying to intimidate Jesus in the Gospels, right? Saying, I have thousands in me. You'll never know all of my names. You can't cast me out. See, the Jewish exorcist said, man, if you can get the name... You can cast it out, but what do you do when the Spirit's mute? (laughs) That's an impossible Spirit to cast out. The only way you're going to be able to do that is if you already know the Spirit, Jesus. You must be on His team. You must be in cahoots with the Spirit. (laughs) Isn't that insane, what they're doing here? They're saying, we don't want to accept the fact that you have the power to cast out these demons. We have to find a way to twist it to elevate ourselves. They're worried they're going to lose their power, their prominence, their position if Jesus is the Messiah because He's setting up a kingdom that is so different than what they desire. And see, it's said in Isaiah 35, 5-6 that the Messiah would come and that he He would cast out demons. You know what He would do? He would heal the blind. Here He is healing a blind. (laughs) That He would heal the tongue of the dumb that they would sing. He's healing a mute here. He's doing exactly what the scribes read about. The kind of things they wore in their phylacteries, on their wrists and their forehead, and yet they still were blind. That Jesus was the fulfillment of all of it. Why is that? Because they didn't sincerely seek the Lord in their study of the Word of God. I was having a conversation earlier, we were talking about the liberal universities that call themselves Bible-teaching universities these days. Can I tell you, I graduated from, uh, from Azusa Pacific in, in California, if you guys are familiar, in 2006. That was quite a while ago now. And it was kind of crazy then. God, hey, If you're an alumni, sorry, it's what it is. I am too, so we can argue afterwards. But here's the reality. <laughs> They're doing things like saying, when you're in my class, you're going to refer to God as she and her throughout the whole class. You know why? Because God also sometimes refers to Himself, you know, as like a hen that would gather His chicks. So therefore, we can also want to get used to calling Him a female. Why don't you just teach the Bible? How about that? <laughs> Instead, we're spending months on training children, students, to, to approach the Bible in a way that no one ever promoted, by the way. You won't find that in church history, that this was a, a, a something that we do. And then there's this idea that, well, is Jesus even really God, though? Maybe He's just a representative of God. These are the things that are being taught at colleges that say, God first, on their sign. And they call themselves a Bible university. Can I tell you, they're handling the Word of God all day long. But they're mishandling, and they desire to exalt themselves and their own agendas. Don't think this doesn't happen still today. (laughs) You have to take the Word of God, interpret it with the Word of God, and when you submit to it as being the inerrant Word of God, man, it's going to change you. But if you handle it with this intent to, I'm going to make myself right, I'm going to make myself exalted, you're never going to know the blessed truth that lies in this scripture. Amen? These people came and said, I don't care about the miracles that are happening. You know what? We don't like Jesus, therefore we're not going to give Him the glory that He deserves. (laughs) And it's crazy because if their own guys would have done this miracle, oh man, they would have exalted these men. (laughs) We know that, right? If it's my team winning, then this is definitely a work of God. (laughs) If it's not my team, then I'm going to write it off in skepticism and say there's no way that God works like that. We do these kinds of things even in church sectarianism, right? It's like, oh, I don't know about that group over there. I heard good things happen, but I don't like the way they dress. I don't like the way they talk. That can't be God working over there. (laughs) Don't let traditions of men keep you from knowing that God is actively on the move. It has to align with Scripture, amen? But man, can I tell you, we limit of what God wants to do in our life, because we still want to remain exalted in our things. When we come pliable, ready to be flexibly broken by the Lord, (laughs) great things begin to work. Great things begin to happen. These scribes, they were so hard, they were so stubborn, they couldn't see what was right in front of their face. Look at 23 through 27. It says, So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. And then he will plunder his house. So Jesus answers this absurd accusation of the scribes. He knows what the scribes are saying. He hears they're saying, oh, it's by Beelzebub. It's because he's a Satan, uh, I'm sorry, an agent of Satan that he's casting out this demon. And so Jesus has to teach them in parables. I love this. Jesus uses parables often. Parable in the Greek is this word. It's parabole. What this means is to take something and to throw it alongside another, to place it alongside another. The idea is I'm going to take a, we'll say, an earthly picture to better explain a heavenly principle. That's kind of the desire with a parable. I'm going to take something that you know of, that is easy to understand to some extent, because you deal with it. And I'm going to apply it to Kingdom things. And see, in this case, what He does, I believe there's kind of two parables. Some people see it as three. I kind of see the first two kind of being one. He talks about a Kingdom being divided and a house being divided. I see that as kind of one parable. Kind of the same deal. He says, think about a Kingdom, think about a house. He goes, if there's fighting, infighting within, that thing's going to get destroyed don't care what the kingdom is or, or what the house is. When you have opposite directions and they start to wage war against other, it's going to crumble from the inside. And see, he says, Satan's not doing that. He says, if that's the case, Satan has an end right now. In other words, Satan's already destroying himself. For Jesus to say that Satan has not quite ended yet, <laughs> What this means is that it affirms what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5.8. He says that Satan has not risen up against himself, but that Satan is actively pursuing the church, waging war as an adversary of the church, walking about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may destroy. Satan's not busy fighting himself. He's looking to destroy the work of God. Amen? But the scribes, they just need to come up with something. And it's amazing, because they're actually working themselves as agents of Satan without even realizing it. But they're accusing Jesus of being an agent of Satan. Great hypocrisy in this section. But the idea of a house and a kingdom being divided, I couldn't help. I know we're talking about the idea of Satan's not doing this. Because he, he's not foolish enough to destroy himself from the inside. But there was a reminder to me on two, two levels. First of all, practically. Let's talk about the home. Husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, are we divided in the way that we approach the Word of God in our homes? I hope, I'm going to talk to the fathers first and the husbands first, because that's where I'm at, right? These are the shoes that I'm in. The reality is, sometimes we let our wives dictate how we're going to raise our kids in the Word. We're going to let our wives dictate what we watch or what we listen to and say, whatever her threshold is, I'm going to allow that, right? Can I tell you as leaders of the household, man, just seek the Word of God. Stand for truth, do the things the Word says. And man, when your wife is also pursuing those things, can I tell you there's going to be a blessed, strong foundation in that home, amen? If one of you is building on sand and one of you is building upon the rock, that's not good. If you're both building upon the rock, praise the Lord. Let's be clear, though, if you're both building on sand, you might say, well, we're not divided. Well, that's going to crumble, too. (laughs) Get together on the rock that is Jesus Christ. Build upon the Word. That's the first, I think, practical application. Wives, continue to encourage your husbands. Continue to pray for your husbands. And husbands, be pouring out the Word of God upon your wives, as Ephesians talks about. Amen? That's the practical. But there's a bigger one that has to do with the church. And see, when I look at this, I know we're talking about Satan doesn't divide against himself, but you know what Satan's, one of his greatest tactics are? Is to divide the church. <laughs> to get us to infight against each other. And now we could talk all day about the other denominations, and the other things that we tend to fight against and whatnot. but let's just bring it right here to Calvary Chapel McKinney. <laughs> can I tell you one of the ways that division begins is through gossip. Another way that division begins is by thinking, man, legalism is the solution to all these things. Another one is to just think that everyone that wants to obey is a legalist. Oh, they don't understand grace. There's these things that happen. We start to divide. We're judging one another. And in reality, can I just tell you, you have enough to worry about in your own life right now. (laughs) Will you just commit to the things that the Lord has called you to and work on yourself first of all? If you want to worry about yourself, worry about yourself and your obedience to the Lord. Amen? Amen. As we do that, it will make us who we need to be to love our neighbor as ourselves, To the power of the Spirit. But I'm always so worried with the big old plank in my eye to go point out the speck in someone else's. And I go, Lord, it doesn't mean that we're not to judge each other according to our fruit. Amen? We are to know that the Scripture says we should live like this, we should do this. But when we start elevating ourselves as, oh man, we're the real Christians, because we're super obedient. First of all, you ain't that obedient, okay? (laughs) Secondly, man, good, use that to guide some. Pour into someone that needs it. Don't push them away. Pull them in deeper to the Lord, and we will become firm and strong to stand upon the rock. But Satan desires... With every little thing that, man, we can use this to just sow seeds of discord. You know, what? one of the things that God hates is those who sow seeds of discord. We always talk about the things that God hates outside of the church, but can I tell you what He hates? He does not like this kind of thing. Gossip, false... I mean, just, just, just how many times I've followed the trail of gossip, and it turns out none of this is true. We can save so much. And I'm telling you this as a church in its infancy. It's not because this is running rampant here. I guess I should make that clear, huh? Everyone's all scared right now. I'm going to call out names or something. No, that's not what we're doing. We're a church in its infancy. And if we want to build up right, we've got to start early. (laughs) As we grow out, this creates opportunities for people to be jealous. creates opportunities for people to be hurt. creates opportunities for people to be really super judgy. Because we're all coming from different places. We're church plant. <laughs> we may come from different Calvary chapels that did different things different ways. And we're like, that's not the real way to do it. We did it like this. Can I just tell you? Let the Lord lead it. To the power of the Spirit, according to His Word. But be ready to be used by the Lord. If we, if we desire to edify one another, as Romans 14, 19 talks about, man, we're going to see an awesome thing happen in the church. Satan hates when these things happen. (laughs) Satan's not foolish enough to destroy himself, but he tries to get the church to be so foolish. May we not do that. Amen? Awesome. That was kind of a heavy word. All right, cool. Uh, In 27, he also gives this, this, this second parable. It says, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. And I see that as kind of the secondary principle or parable in here. Some people see it as a third. I see it as a second. I see the first two going together. But... Right here, what's happening is Jesus is being accused of working... I I love this word, in cahoots. I I, I feel like that's a funny word, but he's in cahoots with the devil, right? He's on the same team. And Jesus just said, you don't do that. You don't destroy your own team. That's not a good game plan. He goes, let me actually explain to you in a parable what's happening. You have a very strong man who is Beelzebub, Satan. Very strong. (laughs) He has possessions and things in his control right now, in his house, He says, but can I tell you what's actually happening? One stronger than him has showed up, and I'm going to bind him. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take the things that he thinks now belong to him. I'm taking these things out. They're coming with me. (laughs) And it says, I'm going to plunder his house. I love this. Do we ever think Jesus of plundering something? (laughs) He plunders for righteousness. He says, I'm going to take back the things that are in that strong grip of Satan. Sin and shame and death. The things that Satan holds us in. Jesus says, I'm coming to bind him in these things. And praise the Lord for that. You see, Isaiah 27.1 tells us that one day, the Messiah is going to absolutely destroy and crush Satan completely. But see, at his first coming, Jesus came, and what he did, he, 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 he destroyed, of sorts, the, the grip of Satan for now. Satan is still active and present. We understand that, right? Bless you. But he destroyed his grip. And what that means is that Satan is still alive and active. But you no longer have to be under the hold of his grip. (laughs) This is interesting because many people are still under the grips of Satan. But you don't need to be. Jesus has bound him. Now there's going to be a day when he's completely destroyed, when he comes and when he, he, he rules and reigns. First of all, he's going to spend a thousand years in a bottomless pit. Satan's going there. That's Revelation 19, I believe. And then he's going to be completely destroyed, cast, it, cast out into the lake of fire. And this is all going to fulfill Genesis 3.15, that said that the woman's seed would eventually come and would crush the head of Satan. We read, I believe it was Romans 16.20, it said, He's going to crush the head of Satan shortly under your feet. Jesus is going to do these things. Right now, Satan is out on the prowl to destroy the church, but you don't have to give in to him, because the strong man has come, a stronger man has bound him. And too many times, we think that the strong man still has too much power over us. (laughs) I'll tell you the thing that breaks my heart the most when I'm counseling someone that has just been given over to just deep, gnarly sin is they they say, man, the enemy was just so heavy after me. I get it, but that doesn't mean he has to overtake you. At some point, you gave willingly and said, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and step into this. Jesus bound him. You don't need to continue to let him harass you like that. You don't need to let him. What we're doing, though, is we're creating a space for him to come back in and take control over again. He's still on the prowl. And see, for these guys, they're like, Jesus must be working with Satan. Jesus is absolutely not. I am here to find this guy. And I am stronger than the strong man. Praise the Lord for that. 1 John 4 tells us, Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. That's the, pr- that the principle being expressed that Jesus is explaining in this parable. And so the question, I guess, remains is, are we allowing Satan to keep his grip on us, even though Jesus has come to bind the strong man? <laughs> I'll tell you, I fail at times because I I go, man, this thing's too hard, this thing's, I'm, you know, I I get in my own head about things. Jesus wouldn't have that. (laughs) Jesus wants you to know that you are a redeemed creation if you put your trust in Him. Amen? You don't have to fear that, man, I can never get out of the grip of Satan. He's bound him. Step into the blessedness that is Jesus Christ. We're told in James 4, 7, I believe it is. It says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Sometimes we try to resist the devil just in our own before we've submitted to Jesus. If you submit to Jesus, you'll be able to resist the devil. If you're trying to do this without Jesus, there is no hope. Amen? You've got to put your trust in Jesus. And see, it's incredible because Satan has to know what's coming. He has to know. I mean, he's the, he's, he's the deceiver of all deceivers. So maybe as the father of lies, he really believes he's going to win somehow. But I think about this. He, I believe he knows that his time is short. <laughs> think about how the demons say, Oh no, are you sending us to the abyss now, Jesus? Who told him this was going to happen? They know. I think the Lord of the demons knows just as much. He's going to be destroyed. But he wants to convince you that he's not going to, that you won't have victory in Jesus Christ. The victory belongs to Jesus, not us. But when we trust in Jesus, we will be able to walk in the victory. (laughs) Continue to walk in the Lord. Amen? Look at these, Jesus is going to speak on offenses. Look at 28 through 30. It says, Assuredly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation, because they said he has an unclean spirit. So Jesus takes this opportunity of a bunch of these men, these scribes coming, and going, hey, you're working through the power of Satan. And this is huge, because they didn't just say he was demon-possessed. They said he was Satan-possessed. Like, he is full-on possessed with the devil. And Jesus says, man, this is a great teaching opportunity to tell you about this little thing called the unpardonable sin. (laughs) About the unforgivable sin. And see, we have to understand what this is, because, can I tell you another, this is another angle of Satan. He gets the church to think that they've committed the unpardonable sin at some point in their life, so that they stop following Jesus. Can I tell you, the unpardonable sin is not that you at one time said some stupid joke about the Holy Spirit back in your B.C. days. It's not because you fell in doubt here, it's not that. The unforgivable, unpardonable sin, as it says here, is he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, you can't have forgiveness. Let's talk about for a minute what it is to blaspheme. This is to despise, to hate against, to fight against, to to have contempt for. And it says those that resist the Holy Spirit, those that hate and despise the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, they won't have forgiveness. Everything else, you can know forgiveness. (laughs) But can I tell you, how do you get forgiveness? You have to put your trust in Jesus Christ. What is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? To proclaim that Jesus is the Christ. To proclaim that Jesus is Lord, that He's the Messiah, that He is the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, as John one twenty nine says. But if you resist the work of the Spirit, we're told in John 16.8 that the job of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We're told in John 16.13 that the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth. And in John 15.26, the Holy Spirit testifies to the hearts of men that Jesus Christ is who He says He is. So now we understand, well, what's the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to tell you that you need to repent and believe in the gospel. You need to trust in Jesus Christ. When you blaspheme against the work, the ministry, the testimony, the person of the Holy Spirit, you're not going to be forgiven for that thing because forgiveness is only found in the very source of His testimony. (laughs) So look at, can you be forgiven of, let's let's be really drastic here. Can you be forgiven of murder? Yes! Can you be forgiven of fornication and adultery? Can you be forgiven of all these wicked things, lying and stealing? Yes, you can. But you only get forgiveness by believing upon the testimony of the Holy Spirit. By repenting and putting your trust in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Too many people think, Oh man, I remember this one time I told this terrible joke in my BC days about, about the Holy Spirit, about Jesus. I mocked Him. I guess I can't ever be forgiven. That's not what this is talking about. If you're concerned that you have maybe blasphemed the Holy Spirit? You haven't! (laughs) Because you're still concerned about what God's opinion is of you. Does He desire to care for you? Does He love you? Do you have an opportunity to be forgiven? And see, Jesus here says that's unforgivable. If you continue in a stubborn stance of rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit. And see, think about what these men have done. They stood in a room where Jesus healed A blind, mute person, by casting out a demon, just as Isaiah 35 prophesied would occur. And they said, he's got Satan in him. (laughs) They're rejecting the ministry of Jesus, of of the Holy Spirit, and rejecting who Jesus Christ is. And he says, man, if you continue in this unbelief, you're gonna be subject to eternal condemnation. Can we just stop for a second and think about that phrase, eternal condemnation? (laughs) Let me tell you another thing that liberal universities are teaching, that hell is not real. That's not what Jesus said. Not my words, but Jesus' words. In Matthew 25.41, Matthew 25.46, right here in this verse, He says, there is an everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Man was not supposed to... it's, it's not created for man, but as man rejects God. He says, I don't want you. God says, I will honor that will. You go and you be separated into a place where God, his, the hope of God's salvation is not there any longer. That's what we're told in, first, I believe it's 1 Thessalonians, I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians 1.9. Paul wrote of hell, he said, Everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Hell is terrifying because there's no chance for hope anymore. Hell is terrifying because it's sealed, it's final, and God's not going to come rescue you from it. You have the opportunity today, though, to be rescued from your sins. You see, the blasting the Holy Spirit is saying, none of that can be true. Jesus is not who He says He is. There's no God that would create an everlasting hell. Can, do you understand that He has created a way for you not to go there? We're so focused on why does hell have to exist? Think about this. Why are you being given an invitation into heaven? It's because Jesus Christ came, lived the perfect, perfect life, and died in our place. Amen? And everyone wants to get away from the fact that hell really exists. If hell doesn't exist, why do we have Jesus on a cross? Man, sin and hell are very real and it's proven through the life and ministry of Jesus' death and resurrection. But again, he's bound the strong man. We don't have to go to hell. We can put our trust in Jesus Christ if we believe the testimony of the Holy Spirit. But the enemy is actively working to keep us to say things like, Oh, Jesus, he has an unclean spirit. <laughs> He's not real. He's not the truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. No one comes to God the Father except through me in John 14, 6. And can I tell you, this leaves no middle ground. In Luke's account of this passage, Jesus said, you are either with me or you're against me. This is the chance to address neutrality in Jesus Christ. People go, okay, well, I go to church though, right? I don't know if Jesus is really like God. Maybe he's just a good teacher. That's not an option. He either is who he says he is or he's not. Amen? If he's not, then he's a liar. It's been presented by C.S. Lewis, right? He's either a liar or a lunatic. But his life shows he wasn't a lunatic. He taught good things. Everyone can accept that Jesus' teachings were good. Was he a liar? He rose from the dead according to uh, Romans 1.4. And with that, He proved, by living a perfect life according to the Spirit of Holiness, and He rose again to prove that He is the Son of God, that He is who He says He is. And in John 5.24, He said, If anyone hears My word, and believes in Him who sent Me has everlasting life, shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Amen? Hell is terrifying, but what's greater than that is the stronger one Jesus has given us a way out. (laughs) And not just out of hell, you know what He's given us an entry into? The presence of God. (laughs) Man, I hate trying to just scare people out of hell. I want you to understand that you get to spend eternity with your Creator. That Jesus loves you and desires to be the light of the midst of the kingdom with you there if you simply acknowledge your guilt. (laughs) That you've sinned. You've fallen short of the glory of God. But when you do, He puts on these clothes of righteousness, these robes of righteousness upon you and calls you a child of God. (laughs) You become part of the family of God. Amen? Do any of us deserve that? No. What we deserved was hell. The gospel is offensive because it says we're sinners that can't save ourselves. But we need to be offended and understand that, man, we need to come to Jesus. <laughs> Repent and believe upon the gospel. It's good news that Jesus came. 31-35, this is how we end. It says... Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat around him, and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. (laughs) So, the way we conclude this section is we had opposition from his family. We started that in the first section, then we saw this example of all the offenses that were coming from the accusations of the the religious leaders. I believe in 31, what's happening is we're going back to this idea that his family's coming to seize him. So there was kind of this pause in the story for a minute. Now, we know that they were coming because they thought he was out of his mind. We're told in Luke 8.19 that they could not approach him because of the crowd. And see, in Matthew 12, 46, it says he was actively teaching the crowd. So his family are so bent on grabbing him, they said, We're going to interrupt Jesus' ministry, even though there's this great crowd, and it's clearly like something's happening here. He's healing, casting out demons, he's doing things. We're going to ignore all that, and we're going to come here, and we're going to try to take him because we think we know what's best for Jesus. <laughs> and so they show up and they send someone in, and they say, Hey, let him know we're looking for him. And I think it's incredible because in verse 33, Jesus says, Who's my mother or my brother? <laughs> You're like, that's almost, does that sound disrespectful a little bit? I think Jesus is stressing something here. Jesus is saying, He knows that these are by blood, His mother and His brothers. We understand that, right? We know that He had brothers. Mark, or, I'm sorry, Matthew 13:55 tells us the names of Jesus' brothers: James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And then in Matthew 13:56, we're told that Jesus also had sisters. So He had a family. He had people by, by again, do the bloodline of, of of Joseph, Mary, whatnot. He has this, these, these brothers and sisters. But again, they didn't all believe upon Him. And see, what Jesus is saying here is, even though you're My people, that's not going to automatically make you My family, spiritually, in the eyes of God. (laughs) This is a huge statement, because remember what John 1.11 says. It says, Jesus came to His own, and His own rejected Him. Think about what the majority of Israel did when Jesus showed up. His people that should have received Him by blood, His nation, they rejected Him. Generally speaking. And so what did He do? He went out, and those that would receive Him and believed upon Him, they became the, the, this, the, saved by the Gospel. Really, the Church, we are this, this new family that's been blood-bought by Jesus, and we are now, in the Spirit, we are made children of God. Amen? We are now His family. Jesus says, You are my family if you put your faith in me. Can I tell you, this is the big takeaway, I think, from this section. You see, his family said, Well, hey Jesus, we know you. We're your family. We're your blood family. Jesus says, Look it. I'll tell you who my brothers and my, and my mother are. And it tells us in the other account, he actually looked at his disciples, and he pointed at them and said, These. This is my family now. And see, we might say, Cool. All right. I, I, I spend time with Jesus. I'm here at church. Can I tell you what he does in verse 35? He qualifies what it is to be part of the family. See what he says here, he says, For whoever does the will of God is my brother, my sister, and my mother. <laughs> I think sometimes what we can do, generally at large as the church, is we say things like, hey, you just believe in Jesus. Just, just believe, just generally speak. Yeah, I believe Jesus existed. I mean, and we've talked about this, right? The History Channel believes Jesus existed, but they don't know the Jesus of the Bible, right? <laughs> they think he's like going to be, you know, beamed up by aliens or something and come back on a dinosaur or something, according to the History Network, right? They don't know what they're talking about. But they say, oh yeah, Jesus lived it sometime. That's not what we're talking about. <laughs> to know Jesus is to walk in the doctrines of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. You're not saved by your works, amen? James 2.17 tells us, faith, if it does not have works, is dead. We are told by Jesus, hey, you can judge one another by your fruits. You should be able to tell who's a false prophet and who's real. By the way that they live and they abide in me. And we're told in John 15, 5, that if we abide in Jesus, right? We're going to bear much fruit. But without Him, we can do nothing. And see, in this section, he says, those that are my family are those that do the will of God. We say, what does that mean? Do you know what the will of God is for your life, according to first, I think it's 1 Thessalonians 4, 3? Your sanctification. <laughs> That's what it says. It says, the will of God is your sanctification. How do you become sanctified? By trusting in Jesus Christ and allowing the Holy Spirit to work in your life. But see, so many people believe, well, if I just have a general idea, if I check the box, go to church, cool, I'm good, right? That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, you need to have an active faith in who He is that you would desire to please Him, to serve Him. Again, not just your Savior, but also your Lord. We've said it. I'm going to say it again. You know what I'm going to say right now. Thank you, you already know it. Everyone wants a Savior, but no one wants a Lord. And see, the reality is, we can profess our mouth that Jesus is our Lord, but we don't do it in action because we don't actually want to submit to Him. Can I tell you, it is the most blessed thing to submit to Jesus Christ. The enemy will tell you, you're going to miss out on this, you're going to miss out on that, you're going to risk this. Can I tell you, you were designed, created to have fellowship with God and do His will, being sanctified by the power of the Spirit through the faith in Jesus Christ. And so this morning, it's funny. We have this opportunity to partake in communion. And I feel like we always grab communion stuff when it's talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But can I tell you what this has to do with? This has to do with partaking of the body and the blood of Jesus and saying, Man, I am now going to abide in Jesus Christ. Yes, we look back to the cross. Jesus told us to do this in remembrance of what He did, of who He is. That it's His body, it's His blood. But can I tell you, these things can become meaningless... Tokens of just ritualism, unless we are abiding in the will of God. Amen? And so this morning, what I would tell you is we have this opportunity to partake in communion and remember that we have been made children of God through Jesus Christ. (laughs) Family in the Lord. You may have family members you're not nearly as close to compared to those that are in Christ with you. Amen? You know how it is. You have people in this room that you say, I trust them more than my own brother. I trust them more than my own sister." That's that bond that we are experiencing in some light way right now. But someday, we are going to know it in its fullness, as we are part of the family of God, in His presence with Jesus Christ, partaking at the wedding feast. Amen? That should make us so excited. <laughs> to go, man, the Lord desires that we walk in His will, and that we do the things He calls to, because it's for His glory, for our blessing, for a testimony to the world, and edifying of the body. And so, Brandon, come on up. We're going to do communion in just a second. And I just wanted to give an opportunity that if you have not put your trust in Jesus Christ, today is the day of salvation.